This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. This is the very important and award-winning Bobcast. <laughs> Welcome to your 16 times nominated by ourselves award-winning almost podcast show on Bovinky things. Yeah, the winner of the Bobcast award for being Bobcast. <laughs> For all the years, that's been a thing. And I'm your co-host, award-winning Bobcast co-host, Caleb Castro. And I am your award-winning other Bobcast co-host, Andrew Smith. And we're here to pump you up. You know, we did actually almost win something once. Like, right back when we first started, (laughs) one of the Reformed meme pages did a bracket competition for favorite podcasts. And we got matched in the first round with the long-running and popular podcast Cultish. And actually kind of gave them a run for their money. But it was not to be. Yeah, so we, we almost won, but we didn't win. Yeah. So we're losers back when we were good and people liked us (laughs) back before they knew that uh we mostly just ramble yeah (laughs) like we're doing right now that's true so what we have on the table of ramblings for today is we'll be continuing our discussion of the covenant uh covenant theology well we just finished up our uh section on The Abrahamic uh, covenant, the covenant made with Abraham throughout Genesis chapters 12 to the end of 17. So we're actually going to be transitioning now to a whole new section here on what might be called the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant or whatever else you might want to say, the national covenant with Israel. The covenant called Mosaic because of its connection to Moses or Sinaitic because of the place where it occurs, which is on Mount Sinai. So we're talking about events primarily documented in the book of Exodus and then continued on into uh, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy. Yeah, and of course, we will be bringing up various elements of the Abrahamic covenant at times or allusions to, and as well as uh, that of the covenant of works in creation in the Garden of Eden. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you want to get a little refresher uh, before we start this uh, discussion, then go ahead and check out those previous episodes if you need the extra context. Because this is a place where things get to be a little more complicated regarding covenant theology in that there's a lot of debate and controversy and questions about what do we do with this mosaic covenant on one hand we see elements of it where it appears very much to be yet another administration of the covenant of grace as we saw in genesis 3 as we saw with noah as we saw again with abraham but then on the other hand there is this particularly legal looking and seeming aspect of it and a lot of the recent debates in covenant theology have related to what do we do with moses what do we do with the mosaic covenant this is put really well in that same way that uh, Andrew said from Richard Belcher's book from 2020, The Fulfillment of the Promises of God. 
In chapter 6, in that very first paragraph there, he says, The Mosaic Covenant is the most difficult covenant to understand. Prominent Reformed scholars have disagreed on its nature and character. You remember that phrase there. The nature and character of the Mosaic Covenant. Questions abound concerning its relationship to the covenant of grace, the role that the law plays in the covenant, the purposes of the curses of the covenant in relationship to Israel's inheritance of the land, and the relationship of this covenant to Christ in the new covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has many aspects to it, and it's difficult to incorporate all the parts into one explanation. Minor differences of nuance can make a big difference in one's understanding and explanation of this covenant. Now, there might be some parts of that that uh, might be a little bit ambiguous, but we'll be looking to unpack some of those nuances and whatnot. But we do have that first consideration of its relationship to the covenant of grace. And we might have this uh, first initial question that we can lead in with. Why was there an administration of the covenant of grace? So why is the Mosaic Covenant gracious? Well, part of it is we need to look at the situation in which it comes. Where do we see the introduction and the clearest expression of God entering into a covenant with Moses? That would be in Exodus chapter 20. This is a famous passage. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, we usually get right into the commandments and what they require and what they don't require. But these commandments have an introduction. They have a prologue. They have God saying something before he gives us the commands and the law. So I'll just read that for you, Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what we have right here is at the very outset, before anything concerning law and commandment is brought forth, we have a gracious proclamation. We have God reminding the people of Israel what he has done for them. Not because they've earned it, not because they obeyed him to get it, but just simply out of grace, God has remembered his people, his people who he made covenant with Abraham to be his people, and he has brought them out of their bondage in Egypt by grace, and that itself is a type of salvation, salvation in Christ. These people were enslaved, they were oppressed, they were hopeless, and God has delivered them. And so we know this is a gracious covenant because of its starting point, which is in a state of grace that God has shown his people. And that continuity with the promise to Abraham is very important. And we actually even will go back and tie it to the promise right after the fall, where uh, the Lord said that he would provide a seed, you know, a promised seed who would come to crush the head of the serpent. We also know this connection to Abraham because it's explicitly stated. You go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and following, we read, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Remember, they had gone to Egypt when Joseph had become a vice regent there, a sort of second in command to Egypt. But then later Joseph was forgotten and they were enslaved. So verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So 
this deliverance by the hand of Moses is grounded in the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, the administration of it to Abraham. And this was fulfilling in part, a partial fulfillment of what the Lord had promised to Abraham before in Genesis 15, that he would have innumerable descendants, uh, that of the sands and that of the stars in the sky. So he was going to bless them with many peoples, which we even see as the language then at the beginning of Genesis 1, where the people of Israel had become too many that they had multiplied. So you see the Lord very much at work in bringing about the things that he was promising in part of uh, Abraham in the temporal historical stage already. But this comes on the context of what Andrew had already said. The Lord is doing gracious work. The Lord is blessing Abraham's descendants. You had brought up the, uh, the law and the prologue of the Ten Commandments. The Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we remember that the giving of the law even comes on the heels of Exodus 19. The Lord said in uh, 19 verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Then he gives a, Now therefore. Okay, here he's going to be stating, I'm going to give you a law. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he tells Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So as he's giving the instructions for what Moses is going to be doing as a mediator, the Lord gives the reason for why he gives the law. It was as a result of his deliverance, his redemption of the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt. So you can already see the typology playing out of the Lord delivers, and then the Lord calls the people that he delivers from bondage into obedience, to hear his voice, keep his commandment, and to be a kingdom of priests and holy nations, to obey and walk in his ways, and then to witness among uh, those around them, which we'll get to again in a moment. But hey, you don't have to take our word for it. This is Bobcast, so why don't we ask Bob Inc. about what he thinks of the Covenant of Grace. We are now joined on the line by Herman... No, we're not. But we do have his written work. Uh, so I have a quote here from Reform Dogmatics, Volume 3, pages 220 and 221, talking about the gracious nature of the Mosaic. He says, just as God freely and graciously gave himself as the shield and reward to Abraham, apart from any merits of his, to be a God to him and his descendants after him, and on that basis called Abraham to a blameless walk before his face, so also it is God who chose the people of Israel, saved it out of Egypt, united himself with that people, and obligated it to be holy and his own people. The covenant on Mount Sinai is and remains a covenant of grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Of course, quoting Exodus 20 verse 2 as we just looked at. Is the opening statement and foundation of the law the essence of the covenant of grace? Yahweh is and perpetually remains Israel's God before and aside from any dignity or worth that Israel may have. So it's not based on Israel's inherent value or their actions. 
And then he says, finally, it is an everlasting covenant that cannot be broken even by any sins and iniquities on the part of Israel. Then he provides a series of proof texts, which if you have Reformed Dogmatics Volume 3, you can look at those yourself. The people of Israel then have had abundant testimony and abundant experience in seeing the mighty acts of God through his hand upon Egypt with the plagues and delivering them out from there. You know, the Lord has ushered them through a part of the desert. He's had them cross through the Red Sea. And he has led them with a, a sign of his manifestation in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Okay, the Lord has had his direct presence with them. And now you have this uh, additional manifestation of the mountain where he calls the people to uh, now after having delivered them from a physical bondage, has them be consecrated and has them approach the base of the mountain. It has the mediator Moses ascend the hill in order to receive this law and the word of God, and then go and deliver this word back to the people. What ultimately is being communicated is this, as uh, Richard Belcher puts in the same chapter 6 on page uh, 54, is that there is a seriousness of entering a relationship with the holy God. The relationship with the holy God has to be approached in the right way. So there's a statement that the people are already in a covenant relationship with God particularly by virtue of the promise to Abraham, but also then demonstrated and displayed with their deliverance. And now reiterated in both Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, where he is saying, I am the Lord your God. So with that, there are particular requirements or callings to then how a person of God, the people of God, must live. And the Ten Commandments then are a general, if you will, summary of the right relationship broken into two parts, into those two tables, how uh, you are to love your God and then how you are to love your neighbor in light of loving that God. Another way to look at it is in the terms of the second question of the Heidelberg Catechism. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So you have God's deliverance and then the obligations we have in light of this deliverance. It's following a similar structure even as our Reformed confessions back here in the covenant with Moses. So the people are receiving the law, hearing the law on the heels of what God has done in terms of his deliverance. To these people. He then calls them to respond in obedience, in gratitude for what he has done. And you actually see this even before the Lord delivers the law in Exodus 20. Exodus 19 says that Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's when the Lord descends. So the law is already then, we see clearly, given in this context of the people are already assenting into the covenant. If you will, they have professed or confessed that on the basis of what God has just done in delivering them, they will live and walk in the way of the Lord. So we bring this up in a question of what is that role of the law then? What is the point then of this law? What can it do for them? 
What does it do to them? And this has been an object, this has been a source of a lot of these controversies in recent debates. Uh, One view that has become particularly popular is what is known as the Republication Thesis. It was popularized by Meredith Quine, which if you've been with us through this series, that's a name we've mentioned a few times now, 20th century Old Testament scholar and covenant theologian, who basically he postulates the idea that in the Mosaic Covenant there is, in some sense, a republication of the covenant of works with Adam, something that is operating on a legal basis, that the people of God are being obligated to do something, and then if they do that something, they will receive a certain reward. This view has also been taken up by other scholars, some that teach at my alma mater of Westminster Seminary, California, where Caleb also attended for a time. And this is the view that is still taught and popularized there. We could say that there is a well-intended interest of understanding that there is a difference between the law and a difference between the gospel. But the question really is, To what extent is there a difference, though? And how does that play out with this Mosaic Covenant? If the people are given this law, and we know that the law cannot save, the law can never be the basis for one's salvation itself. If the law is given again here at Sinai, what is its connection to the promise to Abraham, the covenant of grace with Abraham? Is there a relationship between the two? To kind of uh, get back to what Andrew was saying uh, on terms of republication, Reformed scholars throughout the centuries here have certainly stated that there is a republication. The law is reissued, reproclaimed, proclaimed again at Sinai. But what is the nature of this law? We had mentioned that word earlier on at the beginning of this episode in the quote from Richard Belcher. What is the nature and character of this covenant? What is the nature and character of the law's role? How is that going to play out in the life, both temporal life and spiritual life of the Israelite nation? Okay, Are there benefits to obeying the law? Are there blessings for it? Are there curses for not following the law? We know that if you keep the law, it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. It cannot save you. But can you, in some manner get a blessing, a a physical temporal reward for obeying? Is there a benefit or blessing for obeying the law? Now, we have that on an individual level, is, is a question, but what about for an entire people of God, for an entire earthly nation, such as Israel? What blessing is there, if any, temporally, if they're to obey the law? And those of the, we'll call the Clinian uh, Republication, will say that largely it has to do with retention of the land so that they can stay in the land so long as they as a people are corporately obeying, walking in some kind of form of obedience generally. They can have a righteousness relative to the rest of the nations around them and receive the temporal blessing of and benefit of staying in the land. And if they corporately do not then they will receive the corporate cursing of being kicked out of the land. And so if you follow this through throughout what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, 
under the Clinian Republication view. The reason that Israel is exiled is because they are not relatively righteous in the land. They do not follow the law sufficiently. And so for this, they are cast out, they are exiled. And that itself is representative, it is typological of hell, of condemnation. So in one way, this is attempting to establish a typology. So a typology being like the use of type and anti-type, how something in the Bible can point to something else to come. But they also would say that there's a typology looking backwards, that this is a recapitulation, and hence the name republication, of not only the law, but of the covenant made with Adam, that just as Adam was placed in the garden under probation, and by his obedience, he would have received a reward of eternal life, while not on a salvific level, Israel in the land is being put in the land with this mandate to obey this law. And if they obey this law, they will at least receive continued temporal blessings for that obedience. And this is to point back to what happened in the garden with Adam. In a nutshell of all this, and if you're tracking what Andrew just said there, that's really pivotal to this whole thing here. The idea is that this strand of thought is saying that a republication at Sinai means... The economy, the administration, the general concept of the covenant in the garden that Adam had to obey God to receive a blessing or to disobey and receive cursing is put here again in a different sense. In some sense, we have the, a recapitulation, a repeating in a manner of this covenant of works, this sense of, a, of attaining physical blessings of the land. And so, The real question that this then comes down to with it is that is the Mosaic Covenant redemptive or not? To what extent is it a part of this covenant of grace? If this this principle of law blessings and law curses is in the periphery. Is that really the question, though? Because most all of them would affirm that the substance of the covenant is still a covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very keen uh, aspect of it, though. I, I think that's principle. Yeah. When we come down to what is the nature and character of the Mosaic Covenant, whether we're talking Clinian or whether we're talking, you know, Murray or whatever, Richard Beltran had said to himself, what is its nature and character? Are we to say it is redemptive? Is the whole point of this covenant here at Sinai for the sake of redemption, when the law can never redeem. In substance, yeah, it is of the Abrahamic covenant, this everlasting covenant of grace, even though we see a different administration, a different outward form of it. If it's not of the substance of the Abrahamic covenant, if it's not redemptive, then that means its aim, its purpose, its character is non-redemptive. And that would mean that it interrupts or interferes with God's provisions in what was given in the Abrahamic covenant. That would mean that uh, it would interrupt this call to enable us to walk by faith and to receive his forgiveness by faith and to love him in this way of a blameless life. The call that Abraham is given. Certainly, those in the Clinian strand would not say it is not of the Abrahamic covenant. They wouldn't say that its substance, its very nature, 
is not redemptive. But we have a problem then, if that's the case, are we mixing too much of this idea of the covenant of works and this law merit principle too much into this covenant of grace? Is a chimera created in this way? A mixed covenant, part grace with an aspect of law, grace plus works. With these two principles operating simultaneously within the same covenant. Yeah. Is it redemptive in a works merit sort of way? We have here the question of to what extent do the reintroduction of stipulations for blessing and reward really bear on this? To what extent do these stipulations bear upon this covenants administration, this covenant economy, if it is in one and the same nature of Abraham's promise, if it's one of the same nature of the promise of the seed right after the fall, do we have the same sort of demands and same sort of blessedness that would have came to Adam if he obeyed? And the answer is obviously not. For, I mean, even in this formulation of republication, they can only attach the works principle to land tenure, to living in the land, the temporal blessings that arrive for a time. But then an issue comes from this. So what then exactly is the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? What is the goal of it? What is the telos of it? And for that matter, what should the people under it be doing and thinking about it? Are they trying to love God and to worship God and to serve God as a matter of their eternal salvation? Or are they trying to keep this law to some degree of relative righteousness to keep the land? Because to try to say that it's both does seem to be a bit convoluted and confusing as to what expectations are actually being put on the people and what they what they should expect to receive from them. So it's like, can you have one's nature of grace, but then a kind of-ish nature of covenant of works at the same time? You said that word confusion. That's kind of what comes to mind. It's, it's... I said convoluted. Pardon, convoluted. <laughs> same difference. <laughs> you know, so the difference that we have here is... We remember with the covenant of works, Adam was in a state of integrity where he could keep the law. With this law being announced again here, that keen difference is man is already, all those people, all those hearers who said all that you have said we will do. Every single one of them is someone that's already under the curse and effect of the fall of Adam not keeping God's commandment. Every single person would have been dead in sin and a child of wrath unless God graciously intervenes and he condescends and that he delivers them. And that's why it's important that we understand that the context in which this law is announced at Sinai is on the heels of or following God's deliverance of his people from captivity, from bondage. And this is where it doesn't quite make sense that, as Andrew had already said, that if this serves as a type in shadow, why would it point backwards, point backwards in redemptive history to the garden, to something in which now they are totally dead to, a system that they are dead to? Right. And I think it's important in looking at this, when we look at this use of typology here, we need to understand what a type is and how a type has historically been handled in Reformed Theology. So I'm going to read to you a quote 
from Gearhardus Voss and his biblical theology. Voss himself, one of the most important Reformed theologians of the 20th century, and himself having written extensively on issues of covenants. So Voss says a typical thing, so a type, is prospective. It relates to what will become real or applicable in the future. In the New Testament, the word type occurs only once. Here he cites Romans 5.14, which is, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, of course, Christ. Where Adam is said to have been a type of Christ, as Voss says. This is the technical theological meaning of the word, which therefore must have been in use before the time of Paul, because Paul himself uses it. So, in terms of the definition of a type, a type is something that looks forward, according to Voss. Now, this is important because a lot of the proponents and defenders of Klein will say that Klein is thoroughly Vossian, that he's taking up Voss's work and continuing it and improving upon it. Yet it seems like at this understanding of typology, there actually is a break with Voss and that tradition regarding typology. We can also get more into, I think time may preclude us today, but if you look at how Voss formulates these covenants, it would be much more similar to, for instance, Bavink than it would be to Klein. So these are things we need to consider when we're, for instance, trying to trace the relationship between covenant theologians and how much are they really drawing from what came before. And also, how are they using terminology? Are they using it in a way that's proper or improper? Here with that terminology, we have a very important core concept um, that has to be considered to understand this. This question of what is law? How is law being conceived here in Klein's interpretation here of Exodus 20? In a related question, we had said that the covenant of works is being republished in some sense. This is language taken directly from Klein, and those who have followed after him would put it. The covenant of works is republished in some sense. That in some sense refers to merit or what is called the works principle. There's a works principle that is at play that is being drawn on from the garden. And this we had actually brought up already in part uh, in our episodes on the covenant of works. So if you need a little bit of a refresher there, again, this might be a good point to go on pause here and check back on that previous episode. We do want to point out here this works principle, though, in the sense that, at least here we can say, with Adam, the general principle was that righteousness is always followed by a corresponding reward, that there is a reward for service rendered. Klein would refer to this as just simple justice or strict merit. Because of God's just nature, he must reward man for services rendered to him. So even now, if man, after the fall, cannot warrant salvation for obedience and righteousness, rewards may be met out for one's relative righteousness, and those rewards are temporal rewards. So for someone obeying, God must give a corresponding appropriate reward. It's just a part of his nature. 
we can go way further into that. We could be here all day and unpacking this, and perhaps in a future episode, we can speak about this. So a reward for the general righteousness rendered, uh, even if obedience can't save you. So for example, Noah with the flood, he was virtually the most righteous man on earth because everyone else was an apostate. He was relatively then the most righteous compared to everyone around him. And as part temporal reward for his righteousness, God saved Noah and spared his family of whom he was the head of. Likewise, Abraham in obeying God in his command to go up to the mountain and offer Isaac, his only son, as a sacrifice. Because he obeyed, God rewarded him. God stayed his hand, first of all, in sparing the son of promise, but then also rewarded Abraham's righteousness with a material reward. And that was the land that uh, the Israelites will now be inheriting shortly after this Exodus 20 episode. So merit, uh, simply, in this manner, is that God must reward for a relative obedience, and yet he will curse and punish for that relative disobedience, and these will come out in a temporal mode. And so our next question that we will need to take up is, can this be so, and should this be so, that this relative righteousness can and should be meritoriously rewarded? For the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and pause, and we'll come back next time and take up that question as we get deeper into this discussion of the Mosaic Covenant. So we thank you for listening to this episode of Bobcast. We hope it's been helpful and that you've learned something, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to dive into this topic. And until then, Toadzins. Toadzins. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.